Do you crave meaningful conversations with people of different backgrounds and perspectives? Do you admire certain people from afar but wish you can get to know them on a deeper level? Thankfully, we live in an incredible age where long-form conversation allows us to connect with those who inspire us beyond the often manufactured sound bites, small talk, and social media posts we are bombarded with on a daily basis. This is a podcast that seeks to provide you, our listeners, with refreshing content from a variety of inspiring guests, a place where we can truly hear their stories. I'm Karen Corrin, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 30 of Soul Sessions with KK. I'm your host, Karen Corrin, and my next episode is featuring Rabbi Joshua Maruf, who I'm honored to call my rabbi. So if you think this is your typical ask the rabbi, think again. In this episode, Rabbi Maruf tells me about how he became a rabbi when all he wanted to be was a psychologist. We have a very interesting conversation about pursuing our passions and pursuing our vocation. It's very interesting and it'll make you think twice about what you want to be pursuing in your life. I also ask him questions about you know, what I believe many people want answers to, such as like, what's the difference between being religious and being observant? And what does spirituality have to do with any of that? Also, what is Judaism's role in helping us deal with a crisis, especially our current one? And in what areas can Orthodox Judaism improve? And so much more. Rabbi Maruf grew up with an Ashkenazi mother and a Sephardi father, and he talks about the difference between the two cultures and how we can bridge the gap between all denominations and cultures of Judaism. He also talks to me about what the biggest threat to Judaism is today, and his answer may surprise you. This episode will give you a fresh perspective on Judaism and a hope for a better future. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Soul Sessions with KK. My guest tonight is someone I'm honored to call my rabbi. I have been meaning to interview Rabbi Joshua Maruf for quite some time right now. He is the reason why I'm staying sane after all these months of being in a lockdown during this pandemic. Rabbi Maruf, welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So Rabbi, I know you have a degree in psychology. I mean, you have your bachelor's in honors in psychology from Stony Brook, your master's in educational psychology, and you also studied your doctoral program in psychology for five years. So why did you choose to become a rabbi? There's actually a story to that, um, and I'm not sure how much of the story will be of interest to you, but I'll begin, uh, you know, from my youth, from, you know, a very young age, I had an interest in uh, Jewish studies and and Jewish learning that was maybe more pronounced than some of my peers. So, like, I was one of the kids. I grew up, as as you know, um, I didn't go to uh, Jewish 
formal education uh, in elementary and middle school. So I attended a local synagogue Talmud Torah program, Hebrew school program. And I was one of the kids that everybody hated because I actually liked Hebrew school and, you know, wanted to, wanted to be there um, and, and enjoyed it. And I always had a, 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 a pull uh, towards it. Uh, although I had made up my mind pretty early on that I was going to be a psychologist and, and, and not a rabbi by profession. That was something that I, uh, that I held fast to even into my adult years, that I felt that although I loved Jewish learning and I had a great passion for it, and um, for it, when I finally came uh, to my high school education, I did uh, have the good fortune uh, to be enrolled in a, in a yeshiva day school. But uh, that, that came from my own initiative. I, I asked my parents and, and um, I had attended a private school until then. It wasn't a Jewish school. There were a lot of Jewish students, but it was a private school. When I re reached the crossroads of high school where that school no longer had passed the eighth grade, um, I wanted to go to Jewish education. I wanted to have a Jewish education. I wanted to be in a yeshiva high school and my parents uh, supported that. And so then I was very fortunate to do that. But even at the conclusion of that, that stage of my life, I was still very much convinced that I did not want to be a rabbi as a profession. I wanted to learn and I wanted to teach, which I already, uh, I had already become sort of like a junior teacher, you know, by the end of my high school, uh, by end of my high school years, and I, and I very much loved that, but I didn't want it to become my profession. I felt that a person should be able to have a profession independently of their Jewish learning and not be a mercenary uh, and, and benefit monetarily from, uh, from the teaching. And, but what seemed to happen to me again and again was I found myself in situations where I was called upon to serve in a kind of rabbinic capacity against my will, and slowly but surely it became uh, so many different uh, smaller obligations that I had made to different institutions that it kind of took over my life. So, uh, and, and in some cases, the, the stories are almost, uh, they've almost become like legends in my, uh, in my house because I've told them so many times, but they are true. You know, it happened to be that I came to, uh, my family moved to Riverdale. Well, actually, when we first were married, we lived out in Suffolk County, which is where both my, my wife and I grew up. So, uh, and we were part of a very, very small, two very small communities. One, uh, a rabbi who knew me from high school asked me to be an assistant rabbi for him. And since I needed to show my father-in-law that I could make some kind of a living uh, and I was still in school, I accepted the job, even though I, I didn't really feel that 100% comfortable. I was like maybe 20 years old. Um, I, I took the job. And then after that, we moved to a small community where they needed they were trying to build the community out there and they needed people who would be active participants and somebody who could read Torah and do some of the things that I had learned to do. So um, I was able to help there. So we lived there for three years and then finally we moved to Riverdale. And when we arrived in Riverdale, I was very pleased because I felt that this was finally a community where I wouldn't need to be a rabbi because they wouldn't have any use for rabbis in a community that was filled with rabbis. But literally the first Shabbat that I came to that community, I sat down in the back um, of the of the synagogue of the Sephardic Minyan, minding my own business, and a guy came up to me and he said, "Do you know how to read the Torah by any chance?" <laughs> and I said to him, I, "I I feel ashamed. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this on your podcast, but I I, I kind of told a white lie and I said no, <laughs> I don't know, because I was trying to avoid ensnaring myself in another obligation. 
But what happened was that I heard the person who did get up to read and they were so bad that the next time I came back to that minyan, which was two weeks later, I had to admit that I knew how to read. And um, after that, every Friday night, they would ask me, can I read tomorrow morning? And so that became uh, a fixed practice. And then they asked me, would you mind giving a Dvar Torah in the morning? And then they asked me, would you mind giving a, a talk in the afternoon? And wow. so uh, one afternoon of Shabbat, the Chazan, who had been running the Minyan basically as the rabbi, he was Israeli, said, let's go for a walk. I said, okay. I had maybe been there for six months. We're walking outside. And he turned to me and he said, you need to take over for me because I'm leaving. I'm moving to Teaneck. I said, he didn't ask me. He told me, you're going mm -hmm. to take over for me. So from that moment on, I became the rabbi of the Sephardic Minyan of Riverdale. And that sort of like brought me into the spotlight in many ways and gave me many connections that um, led to other opportunities. So there was a, mm -hmm. there was, for instance, there was a Dafyomi class that took place in the morning there. And I happened to be lingering around. And before that, nobody even knew that I was a rabbi and nobody cared. But now all of a sudden, I'm the rabbi of the Sephardic Minyan. So there was a Dafyomi class and I happened to be there praying Shacharit in the morning. And one of the guys says, hey, you're a rabbi, right? I said, yeah. He said, our teacher didn't show up today. Could you teach us the Dafyomi of the day, the daily Talmud page of the day? I said, I don't even know what the daily, what you're up to. I don't follow the calendar of the daily Talmud. He said, please, just wing it. Just to... So I sat down and I taught them. They said, could you please come tomorrow? Because I don't think the teacher's coming tomorrow. I said, sure. It was a, it was a Thursday, I remember, because the next day was Friday. So I showed up on Friday. At least this time I knew what I was teaching. I sat down, I taught them the 45 minute class. At the end, they said, by the way, we told our teacher he doesn't have to come anymore. Oh my God. Because we found the new teacher. I said, are you kidding? What do you mean? So I, I kept that commitment for the next two and a half years until I left Riverdale because back then we didn't have texting. We didn't have any, you couldn't cancel. There was, if there was snow up to, uh, you know, two, three feet of snow, this is, you know, this is New York. It didn't matter. You had to show up. And so for the next two, three years, I, I, I kept that commitment. And while I was doing that, another guy came to me and said, listen, we, need, we have a Jewish school, a Sephardic school. This school is currently uh, located in Teaneck. At the time, it was located in a town called Leonia, New Jersey, right over the bridge. And I was living in Riverdale. And it was called Ben Parat Yosef. It still is. Um, excellent school, actually. Um, they, he said, listen, we need a rabbi as sort of like a, a, a rabbi of the school. And you have what we're looking for. You're a rabbi. You're Sephardic. You have an education background. You have a psychology background. We need you. I said, I'm really not interested. He said, please, we need you. They were calling me. I wasn't returning their calls. You know, I was a young kid. I didn't take it so seriously. Compared How to old were you at the time? Uh, 25 or 6, 27 maybe. So you were very young. Yeah, I was young. You know, this was the last year I was in Riverdale. And the guy kept begging me. They said, please come to an interview. I'm like, okay, I'll come to an interview, but I, I, I don't want to do this. I'm trying to finish my doctorate. At the time, I still was fully committed to the idea that I wasn't going to be a professional rabbi. I was going to be a psychologist. That's what I always dreamt of being. And, um, and I said, listen, I'm, I'm doing my doctoral program, and now I'm t I've taken on all these other communal responsibilities. I don't have the time. He said, please, we need you. We, you have to do, do half the day. Just do half the day. So, okay, I, 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 I literally didn't want the job, but they, they kind of like guilted me into the job. Now, it happened to be a wonderful school and a wonderful experience and everything that I, I gained a tremendous amount from it. I don't regret it at all, but at the time, I didn't want to get into it. But what ended up happening was I was doing that. I was doing the morning dafyomi. I was doing the Shabbat and the holidays for the 
Svartik Midyan. Another rabbi asked me, can I teach a women's program, women's learning program in the afternoon? I was doing so many different random unrelated things that I had to take a leave of absence from my graduate school program just to do these side jobs that were supposed to be like uh, uh, favors for other people. And uh, one day I'm sitting at my desk, very busy, of course, um, at, the, uh, at the school in New Jersey, and I get a phone call. And the guy says, hi, my name is Moshe. And I am the executive director of a synagogue in Rockville, Maryland, Sephardic Synagogue. He was an Ashkenazi guy. He didn't sound very Sephardic. His name was, you know, Moshe Teichman. So a very Ashkenazi sounding guy. Said, we're looking for a rabbi. Do you know anybody? I said, listen, I'm so busy. I have so many jobs between my morning commitment, my afternoon, my evening. I was teaching classes in the evening too. I said, I don't have a social life. I don't know anybody. What rabbi would I know? I said, but I can send you my resume. I sent them my resume thinking, what is the chance I'm ever gonna leave New York or the tri-state area? You know how New Yorkers are. We never imagine we leave New York, maybe to Israel, but besides that, I would never go anywhere. I sent my resume that afternoon. I had a conversation with one of the, one of the board members and the, a Shabbat later or so, I was traveling down to Maryland to do a Shabbat like tryout. And I came back still thinking there was no chance I would do it again. But they asked me to come a second time, and this time with my wife. And at the time, my daughter, who was 15, was, was, was an infant. She was two months old. And uh, I think that sort of clinched the deal. We said, you know what? If I'm going to do all of these different jobs, rabbinic jobs anyway, and I'm not going to be able to complete my doctorate at this rate, I might as well just go all in. And Hashem is, is, is trying to send me a message. Like, all these things keep happening because, you know, this is meant to be. Mm-hmm. And I just accepted God's judgment that I wasn't allowed to get away from this, uh, this uh, line of work and, uh, and, and accepted it full force. And then I ended up a rabbi in Maryland. And after that, I was, you know, I was blessed to have been, you know, to have various different uh, opportunities to teach that were available online and to be noticed by, um, you know, by different individuals here in this community. So when I was here, as, a, as uh, actually doing a sabbatical here one summer, um, I made a connection with somebody in the community. I didn't really know about our community at the time. One thing led to another. I ended up coming to speak a Shabbat there and the people in the Beit Midrash had heard some of my videos on YouTube or something like that. And uh, like, before I knew it, like they were offering me an, oppor- an opportunity here and my, my contract was, was up in Maryland and I came back to my roots and, and, and that was after nine years there. So. Pretty much I never looked back and I have to be grateful for uh, Hashem leading me in this direction. Uh, I'm very happy with what I'm doing and it's a very rewarding work. Just How I did you end up loving it? Yeah, I ended up, I, I definitely did my best to escape it. Nobody can ever accuse me of trying to become a rabbi. I really promise I didn't. Um, my friends who became rebbies in in, in day schools or they became rabbis. I don't have that many friends that became pulpit rabbis, but I have friends that became various kinds of uh, teaching rabbis. And I always felt that, oh, you guys, why can't you guys, you know, balance a regular profession with your study of Torah? Because that's what I yearned to do and thought I was going to do. I ended up being the worst of all of us because I ended up being the, uh, you know, the person who went to the other extreme and, 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 and full force rabbi uh, career. But, you know, I, I'm very thankful, but that's the story. Right. Wow. That's a very phenomenal story. You know, you usually hear that people are following their passions and they're going after what they want and they end up trying. getting what they want. 
you were trying and then Hashem showed you a totally different direction and you ended up loving what you what you're doing right now and you I always loved love it and I always loved learning and I always loved helping mm. people I just felt that I want to do it out of the goodness of my heart I don't want to do it as my job you know I just like to do it as a Jew right but uh there were you know in heaven they had other plans as they say do you ever see yourself going back into perhaps studying psychology well, I still read a lot and uh, I still enjoy psychology. One of the things I enjoyed the most about my uh, work, especially in Maryland, was counseling because it sort of allowed me to wear both hats, the rabbinic hat and the psychology hat. And even the fact that I studied educational psychology was, uh, was kind of a compromise because I, I was going to be a clinical psychologist initially. Uh, and that's really what I wanted to do, but I thought that it might be an easier career path, uh, I was advised that it would be an easier career path to choose school psychology. At the time, that was the case, actually. We're going back like 20 years plus. So right. at the time, that was the case, that it was a much better professional choice. And so I had already kind of compromised on my dream of being a clinical psychologist. Um, I declined the offers that I had to programs in clinical psychology and went after the school psychology. So uh, since I was already... Uh, missing out on that, it was a little easier for me to part with my dream of being a psychologist, I guess, also, because, I, because of that. But I, I, I still enjoy psychology very much, and I think in almost any profession, you deal with crazy people, <laughs> you know? But I, you know, I feel like in, in, in the rabbinate, you, get, you get, have the opportunity to counsel people and to assist them, and uh, both from a psychological and a, and a so-called you know, spiritual uh, perspective. So you, you get the best of both worlds. Right, okay, so speaking of psychology, Obviously, this is a very, very challenging time for many people. And I know as a fact that you have counseled countless people throughout this pandemic. So is religion the answer for people's troubles? Well, that's a really broad question. And I guess it probably depends on what you define as religion. Uh, I think that what a religious worldview offers you is, is perspective. Um, and it offers you a set of values that should hopefully uh, be able to strengthen you and uh, allow you to weather the storms of life, uh, which are many. I mean, this is obviously an unprecedented time uh, that's almost become uh, a cliche. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it, these are unprecedented <laughs> times. We hear that all the, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there's certainly truth to it. These are unprecedented times, and I think that um, the uh, but but the fact remains that a religious worldview and 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 a, a sense of what's really important in life is essential to being able to rise above the obstacles that are inevitably a part of our journey on this planet. Whether we have to endure a pandemic or whether it's other. Uh, traumatic or uh, catastrophic events that befall us, which are inevitable. I mean, these things happen, and we've seen other uh, terrible events, and we've all had to endure challenges um, and uh, stresses. And I think that having a sense of what's really important and having perspective, uh, if religion gives a person a perspective, of, uh, especially about what's really essential in life, we've learned so much during this pandemic, I think, you know. I spoke about it on Yom Kippur, actually, on Kol Nidre. We learned that in order to have a wedding, 
you just need a bride and a groom and, and, and a few people uh, socially distanced from one another to, to make a wedding. You don't need uh, to spend millions of dollars and have a fancy wedding. And the couple is just as happy, if not more so, uh, you know, to be married. Uh, we learned that you, you, to connecting with family, the value of the relationships that are at the core of our lives and how distracted maybe we were from them up till now. We learned about the value of health and how precious life itself is and how fleeting it is, how fragile it is. Um, a lot of people have connected more deeply with their Jewish learning or with learning in general or with reading uh, or whatever form of personal or spiritual growth um, speaks to them. So all of these things remind us of what's really uh, essential in life. And so in that sense, having a religious framework uh, guides one to, uh, you know, to overcome these difficulties because it allows us to see uh, what's really important. Can one do this without religious values? It's a good question. Um, I'm a, I, I believe that there are, uh, you know, that things are not necessarily black and white. Um, religion, first of all, is a vague term. Right. And, uh, as is uh, lack of religion, a vague term. Uh, you know, uh, there is a, uh, there, there are also different gradations of uh, within a, the same, uh, within the same religion, two people may consider themselves religious and have uh, very different outlooks on life and very different values uh, in terms of how they live uh, on, a, on a daily basis. So religiosity is a vague term and uh, irreligiosity might be a vague term. I think that the, the main point is that a, a person who has uh, a higher purpose in life and a set of values that are transcendent is able to rise above the uh, ups and downs that we inevitably encounter in our daily lives. And that's what, like what Viktor Frankl talked about in his very famous book, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that when he was in the concentration camp, you know, what, allowed, what enabled him or what enabled certain people to, uh, to survive it was, a lot of it was mental. A lot of it was psychological. They had a reason to live. They had a reason to survive. He was going to publish his book. He was going to continue his life's work. Um, the, these sen this sense of transcendent purpose uh, goes a long way. Does it, is it necessarily religious? Maybe not in the formal sense of formal religion, <clears throat> but in the sense that it's something that is above and beyond what is immediate and above and beyond what's concrete. If you can see beyond what's concrete, if religiosity means being able to see beyond what's concrete and immediate and presented to your senses and to dream of or aspire to or yearn for or live for something higher than that, then it's religious, you know? But, I'm, but there may be many people who fit that description who would insist that they're not religious. And there might be some people who, are, who consider themselves religious who don't fit that description. Well, and nowadays I feel that the term religious is just about all your externalities. Are you, you know, are you keeping kosher? Are you covering your hair? Are you dressing snoots? Are you praying three times a day? These are all ways how people define, oh, you're a religious person because you daven three times a day. Oh, you're religious because you go to Kanisa. Kanisa, for those listeners who are Ashkenazi and not Persian, um, yeah. Kanisa is shul, it's synagogue. So this description that you said that religiosity and irreligiosity are broad terms. 
Um, I, I feel like people don't define being religious in the way that you just described. Yeah, I like to distinguish between observance and religiosity. Okay, can you define the difference? I think that observance has to do more with what you're talking about. A person could be, there can be various levels of observance. A person might keep more or less strictly kosher, more or less strictly Shabbat, more or less strictly various ritual, uh, you know, ritual practices. But religiosity, what, what, what you might discover is that a person who is less ritually observant might in some instances be more deeply religious, more connected to transcendent values. And another person might be very, very uh, observant of the technicalities of, uh, of practice, but lack some of that spirit um, or a lot of it and, and is, is substitutes um, adherence to the technicalities for, um, for some kind of a higher uh, connection to God or to the wisdom of Torah or to uh, transcendent purpose. So, you know, I've met people who are, maybe this is blasphemous to say or scandalous to say, but I've certainly- We like that. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely met people who are not even Orthodox, who are very deeply religious. They have a profound sense of connection to God and um, uh, and, and a desire to fulfill a, a mission that is beyond themselves. And I've met a lot of people who might define themselves as Orthodox and maybe, maybe they're what they call orthoprax. You know, their, their, their practice is, is, is very, um, is, is in accordance with Orthodox tradition, but they don't necessarily have that passion or that sense of purpose that to me is what the essence of being a religious person is really about. So that's interesting because people define a religious person, what you're talking about, as a spiritual person, quote unquote. Oh, you're so spiritual. You connect to God and you're so like with it and you're so passionate. You're a spiritual person. People don't call those people, quote unquote, religious. They call them spiritual. Right. So what do you think of the term spiritual? Right. I mean, Orthodox Jewish people don't call them religious. Even. Right. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, how does one I base my bring these two together? I think that we have to, re that um, human nature is to reduce things to the most easily accessible form. Uh, and so human nature has been to reduce religiosity to a construct that we can measure. Just like, you know, they did experiments to see, they would teach adults to use, let's say, mathematical formulas to solve problems. But if they had the opportunity to count on their fingers, they would still do that. You know, they would, they would rather use a more concrete method of solving a problem than use an abstract one. And it's, it's, that's part of human nature. And this is something that you and I are not the people who, who discovered this problem. This problem was discovered by Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah when he talks about love of Hashem and fear of Hashem. What does Hashem, your God, ask of you? Only to fear God and to love Him and to walk in all of His ways and to cleave to Him. And the, this is the essence of, of, of Judaism. And what did all the prophets, the most famous maybe is Yeshayahu, Isaiah, maybe Yirmiyahu is also very famous for this, but this was the primary message of basically all of the prophets 
that religion had become about ritual, which maybe took the form back then of, you know, sacrifices or elaborate fasting that they would do with sackcloth and ashes and all of that, the externalities that you're referring to. And they said, this is not religion. And uh, so I'm not the person who, who, who suggested that idea. The, the people who suggested that idea were the people, you know, were really the prophets and the Nevi'im. But, but the average person finds it much easier to define religion in a concrete way by how much you do or how strict you are. And unfortunately, it's not only because people want to uh, measure religiosity by external things, it's also because religion, and maybe, and I don't mean to be critical of any individual or group, I'm saying, but I think in general, there's an issue that uh, religion becomes about defining ourselves as better than other people. And, uh, and you can't really define yourself as better than other people by your internal spiritual experience because nobody can see that and nobody can acknowledge that. But if you're more strict about your observance than other people, that sets you apart from them and shows that you are superior to them. And that's why you find, by the way, and I've noted this before, I actually think I wrote a blog post on it a million years ago, that... Uh, that, uh, what, that, that the prophets, I mean, specifically Isaiah, Yeshayahu, in the, in the Haftarah that we read on Yom Kippur morning, says the fasting that you're doing is not fasting. You're torturing yourself, you're putting sackcloth and ashes, you're sitting around acting as if you're very religious, but that's not a fast at all. He says, what's a fast? A fast is go out and break the bonds of wickedness. Go out and feed the hungry. Go clothe somebody who doesn't have clothing. Bring a homeless person into your house and give them a meal. Okay, that's a fast, not what you're doing. And I asked the question, why doesn't he just say, don't fast? Why does he say a real fast is taking care of the homeless and the needy and giving up your grudges and dropping all of your finger pointing and your fighting and your, you know, oppressing of one another and all that. Why doesn't he just say, don't fast, focus on social issues? Why does he say, this is a fast? And so I, I, my suggestion was that the idea of a fast is really supposed to be to humble the person. The person who's fasting is supposed to humble themselves before God. But what happens with fasting is it actually makes a person feel more pious. Look how religious I am. Look how I'm fasting. Look how strict I am about the fast. Look how intensely I deny myself and deprive myself of pleasure. But in reality, that's the opposite of what a fast is supposed to do because a fast is not supposed to make you feel greater. A fast is supposed to make you feel humble. What really makes a person feel humble is when they have to take care of other people. Why does that make you feel humble? Because if you've ever noticed, religious people will define themselves by what kind of milk they will drink or what kind of meat they will eat or how many pairs of tefillin they put on every morning or any number of measurable ritual activities but you don't find people measuring their religiosity by how much kindness they do for other people. Right. You don't find that. <clears throat> you don't so find people that take on extra stringencies in areas between man and man. Why is it that it's so much more difficult for us, it's so much easier for us to take on stringencies in the, in the ritual framework than it is to take on stringencies between uh, us and other people? What's the reason? Because when you take on a stringency between you and God, you feel that it's making you greater than other people because you're more religious than them and you're more pious than them. But when you have right. to go take care of others and do chesed and open your home 
to, to strangers and things like that, you're saying, I'm not greater than you. I'm the same as you. We're both creatures of God. You're just as welcome to food as I am. I shouldn't be in a, I'm just fortunate to be in a position to be able to help you. But really, we're equal in the eyes of God. That's a lot harder to say. But that's what the Nevi'im are saying. That's real religion. That's what Abraham Avinu, what Abraham did. He wasn't a person who said, I'm better than you. He was the opposite. He opened his home to everyone and served them. So is this a place where you think Orthodox Judaism can improve in? Because I know this is the argument that Reformed Jews have against Orthodox Jews, that they're way too ritualistic. They focus too much on rituals and less on tikkun olam, social justice, and this religiosity that you're talking about. Well, I don't know about Reform Judaism enough to comment on it, and I don't want to specifically, you know, uh, aim a critique at any uh, other denomination, but what I would say is that what Orthodox Judaism should do, in other words, these two things are not mutually exclusive in any way, shape, or form. There's no reason why, if you understand that your mission in life is to fulfill God's will, that's your purpose, and your purpose is to follow the Torah and the fulfillment of God's will, then that precludes the idea that you should be deciding which areas of God's will are important and which ones are not. And therefore, if God says that you need to take care of the needy and the poor, or God says that you need to exercise justice or, uh, or act in a just manner, that you have to be fair and honest and not cheat and not take advantage and treat people with respect and not engage in gossip and other harmful behaviors and so on, alongside with saying that you have to observe Shabbat and you have to keep kosher and you have to observe ritual matters that are between you know, that are called between man and God. So then who are we to decide that one area is more or less important than the other one? Because really, all of them are between man and God. Mm -hmm. Because when you're taking care of another person because they're created in God's image, you're doing it because God mandated that you do it. When Avraham Avinu brought people into his home, was he not being religious? Because he, you know, he was bringing people into his home. Of course, he taught them about God as well, but he first took care of them as you know, hungry human beings. That's, that was also part of his job and also part of his mission. And I think that's part of the reason why, if you look at these, very funny, if you look at children's parasha books, and I'm sure you've seen this. Oh, yeah. Like, Avraham Avinu has tzitzit and black hats yeah. and, and, and tefillin. And all this, and and you're looking at it and saying, why in the world would the people? Now I know that there are midrashim that describe the avot as keeping right. 613 mitzvot. I'm, I, I understand that, but if you just what is bothering the religious average religious person so much that they have to depict all of these people who lived before the time of the Torah as if they were keeping a 613 mitzvot? What's bothering them? What's bothering them is that they don't see in the avot anything that resembles what they consider religion today. Right. Since they consider religion today is all the ritual observances. And they look back and it doesn't talk about Avraham Avinu wearing tefillin. And it doesn't talk about him keeping Shabbat. And it doesn't talk about him keeping kosher. And it might even sound in some cases like he wasn't keeping so kosher, right? Or, so it really bothers them. They say, 
wait a second, if religiosity is defined by these commandments that we keep, so then how is Avraham Avinu even religious? He's not religious. How could our patriarch of our movement not be religious? And we are. Right. So therefore, they have to reinvent Avraham Avinu as a, let's say, I don't want to say 20th century, 21st century, whatever, a modern day, so to speak, religious Jew, because otherwise they can't relate to him. They can't relate to him. Right? He has to be somebody who is doing exactly what we're doing. Why is that? It's because they can only see religiosity in terms of the rituals. Mm-hmm. But what is Judaism? What, we should be doing the opposite. We should be asking, what is Avraham Avinu teaching you that Judaism is? Avraham Avinu is teaching you that Judaism is not about the rituals essentially. It's mainly about sanctifying God's name in the world. It's mainly about raising the consciousness of human beings towards God and transcendent purpose so that people recognize the creator. That was what Avraham Avinu wanted to do. Sanctifying God's name, meaning demonstrating the uniqueness of the creator, that people should be aware of the creator of the universe and should live in light of that awareness in the way that they behaved and the way they treated one another. That's what it was all about. Everything else is details. And Moshe Rabbeinu basically says the same thing. Shema Yisrael says the same thing. Love God remember to think about and talk about Torah all the time and do the mitzvot. Well, what is the purpose of all of these mitzvot? The purpose of all these mitzvot is to bring attention to and sanctity to the name of God. And Avraham Avinu was doing that in his way, and we're doing it with a little bit more of a complicated roadmap because we're not Avraham Avinu. Not because, we, don't, we shouldn't be making Avraham Avinu into us. We should try to make us into Avraham Avinu. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Trying to make him into us and lower him. But really, we, the reason why we need 613 mitzvot is because we don't naturally understand what it means to live a life that sanctifies God's name. Avraham Avinu understood that and lived that way naturally. That's why the rabbis say that he kept all the 613 mitzvot, not because they actually thought that he knew the mitzvot that Moshe Rabbeinu was taught hundreds of years later. It's because he lived the Torah. He lived the mitzvot. That's what he did we are disconnected from the purpose of Judaism so much that we can't see Abraham Avinu as a religious person. Mm-hmm. Where and, do you think the fault lies? Why, why is it like that? Why are we not trained to... Mm-hmm. It's education. I mean, that goes to, you know, that, that goes to the issue of education and how, okay. how Judaism is taught and how Judaism is, uh, you know, is understood. And, and obviously, if, uh, if the teachers... Uh, lack in understanding and they uh, pass that on to the students or the children so then the situation uh, becomes progressively worse but obviously being a person of true Jewish religion like Avraham Avinu is a lot harder than being a person of the uh, ritualistic version of uh, Jewish religion because the, relig- ri- the ritualistic version of Jewish religion, you open a handbook and you follow the handbook and, and, and if you follow the handbook, you are, you're good. It gives people security. Yeah, and, and reassurance and, and it validates them. Sometimes if I'm experiencing anxiety, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm like, you know what, let me just like open up a Tehillim and pray some Tehillim. It'll make me feel like, okay, I just did something concrete. I did something that made me feel like better about myself right. as opposed to contemplating my life, contemplating God right. and seeing where he is in my life and doing something for him. And, you know, it reminded me, I actually listened to um, your last class 
of Bereshit, where you were talking about Cain and Hevel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very interesting the way you spoke about it. Um, you said that Hevel symbolized a person who did everything, L'shem Shemaim, you know, for the sake of heaven. And Cain represented a person who did everything to make a name for himself, to acquire for acquisition. And in our day and age, there's so much focus on, you know, success and you do you. Everything is about you and putting your name out there, you know, in, on Instagram. Everybody has to make a name for themselves. People's names are their brands. Companies are their names. Um, like everybody's an influencer now, right? My question is, how does one reconcile their desire to accomplish and be successful while at the same time doing it all for God? Like, is there a way to, (laughs) I know it's a complicated question, but just. Uh, The the lead up was complicated, but the, (laughs) but the final pitch was, was clear. No, I think there's a, a, a relatively simple answer to it. Uh, not simple to do, but simple to understand, you know, as most things are. The idea is simple. The, the, the follow through might be hard. Um, if, you want, if a farmer wants to, uh, let's say, plant a crop and grow it and harvest and so on, a farmer can do that and two farmers can do exactly the same action and the action can be fundamentally different because one farmer can come and say, I'm doing this because God gave the earth to human beings to cultivate and to derive their sustenance from it. And that is how God provides us with our sustenance by giving us the ability to draw it out from the land in this incredible way, which really, if you're honest about it is, our involvement is very limited. We put seeds in the ground and we, I mean, I don't mean to downplay what the farmers do. They do a lot of work, but without the enriched soil and the rain and all of the other conditions that are necessary and without obviously the mechanism that a seed becomes a plant, which is itself incredible, um, we wouldn't be able to do any of this on our own. But we, recognizing that I'm doing this and this is part of what God asked me to do to actualize the potential in the world. That's part of our job. That's what Hashem said to Adam in the beginning. I'm putting you in the garden to work it and to guard it. And meaning to bring out of the world the potential that it has. That is the human function. Another farmer just goes and says, I, this is an act of conquering. I'm bending nature to my will and, uh, and, and extracting as much benefit as I can out of it. But a person, and he might be doing the same exact farming. But the one farmer is serving God in the farming that he's doing because he recognizes that what he's achieving, yes, they're achieving the same thing, but one, is, one sees it as fulfilling the mandate of Hashem uh, uh, in, in the sense that he's bringing out, he's actualizing potential that God implanted in him as someone who's a, an actor, an agent, and in nature as a source of sustenance and, and, and sees that as actually, so to speak, God's work that he's doing. Just like when Hashem tells us, uh, these are my characteristics or the qualities, that, the way that I run the world with uh, 
Rachum v'chanun, erech apayim, patient and merciful and, and, and gracious and all these things. Why does he tell us those things? So the rabbis say, so we can imitate the ways of God. Meaning Hashem was gracious and merciful and patient in the way that he created the world. You make a mistake, you don't immediately, it's not game over immediately. There, there are opportunities to, uh, to get up and dust off and continue. That's patience of God. You know, the, God created the world in such a way that it's full of all kinds of, um, uh, of compassion and grace and so on. But we, when we exhibit those same qualities, we're supposed to see ourselves as an extension of God's hand, so to speak. Obviously, God doesn't have a hand. I'm speaking metaphorically. But the idea is that we're almost like tools in the hand of God, exhibiting his qualities through understanding them and implementing the values that he taught us. That's how God, part of how God brings out the potential that he implanted in the world is through us understanding it and acting on that understanding. And look, look at agriculture. It's obvious in the case of agriculture, how much potential is there that would be untapped without human intervention. How much medical, you know, all of the different kinds of medicines that we, we find in nature or we discover how the body works and then we tap into that and allow the body to do its miraculous work on its own, basically. But we're able to facilitate that. And uh, many, many doctors feel like they are the hands of God operating and healing people. And that's wonderful when they, when they view it that way. And they understand that what they're actually doing is allowing the body created by God to heal itself using the intelligence that God gave them to understand how to do that. It's that, that that's God acting. And that's, that's serving God through what you're doing. So uh, right. that's, that's how, I would, how I would look at it. I mean, when, yes, you're, you're accomplishing great things, but if you say to yourself, I'm doing this because this is an ability God gave me and I'm, I'm accomplishing something which is furthering God's plan for the world in my small way, or maybe sometimes in a big way, then, then you really understand what it's about. Mm-hmm. Beautiful answer. Uh, Rabbi, so... I want to talk about the difference between Sephardi Jews and Ashkenazi Jews. I know we don't have so much time. I do have a few more questions for you, but this is something that I really wanted to know from the beginning. Um, So you have an Ashkenazi mom and you have a Sephardi father. Why, like what shaped your hashkafa? Why did you lean towards Sephardi tradition as opposed to Ashkenazi? Well, you know, I grew up really um, with a with multiple influences because um, my father came from a traditional Persian family, and my mom came from a very non-traditional, sort of mainly secular uh, Ashkenazi family. So most of the Jewish culture in our home was from the Persian side. Uh, so my experience of Judaism in the home was largely shaped by that. Uh, but when I went to school and learned, it was always in Ashkenazi institutions because where we lived, there was no Sephardic school. There was no Sephardic Talmud Torah. And so I, I was educated mainly um, in Ashkenazi settings. So I feel like I was blessed to get the best of both worlds um, in terms of being enriched by both and, uh, and developing an appreciation for both. And I grew up in, you know, going basically to Ashkenazi synagogues for the first many years of my life, um, maybe the first half of my life even, uh, almost. And so uh, I'm very comfortable and familiar with the, those traditions. And I studied in Ashkenazi Yeshivot. And 
Um, and I also uh, had the benefit of uh, a, a very rich Sephardic experience. So um, obviously these two traditions complement and, uh, and add to one another. Each one has its own strengths. Each one has its own emphases. Um, I would say that a lot of the, uh, I definitely evolved over my, uh, over my life. I can't say that I was, at, I had, the, I have the same uh, outlook and philosophy, so to speak, uh, today that I had, um, 20 years ago even, but I've had a lot of influences over the time. And I think that the Sephardic em element was both cultural and intellectual, meaning that studying of Sephardic sources had much bigger impact on me than many of the Ashkenazi sources. That was a big part of it. And of course, my identity being Sephardic um, and my comfort level uh, being different uh, just because that's how I grew up, that also had an, an impact as well. Um, Sephardic Judaism, as I've spoken about many times, and you know, everyone knows some of the stuff I've said about it, I think, but maybe not all the listeners have heard my lecture that you know people uh, talk about it. Um, that lecture that I gave, I've given it a couple of times, but that lecture basically spoke about differences in the approach to Judaism between the Sephardic uh, orientation and the Ashkenazi orientation. But we see it even in the culture that the Sephardic culture is much more um, heterogeneous. It's not homogeneous, meaning that Sephardic culture generally is made up of people of all different religious levels and um, a, a general sense of respect for religion, but not necessarily of uh, strict observance, whereas the Ashkenazi world is more divided up into Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, and other denominations uh, that reflect level of observance, uh, differences in level of observance. Of, of observance. So it's what we call a self-selected group, meaning if you're in an Orthodox community, if you're in an Orthodox synagogue, most likely you are Orthodox or something similar to that. And if you're in a conservative synagogue, you're something uh, in the ballpark of what their level of uh, observance is and so on. Whereas in a Sephardic community, everybody is wherever they are, you know, and, and we have one Judaism and one Torah and one set of rituals, but people participate in their own personal lives to an extent that might differ from, you know, from their neighbor. And so that type of attitude is um, what I grew up with, I think. And, you know, in that sense, I always felt very... Um, comfortable being in, 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 in groups of people with different religious levels. And I think that's, that's one of the gifts of, of growing up in a Sephardic community, in my, in my opinion. But also, uh, the, intellectually, I found the tradition and the philosophy of the Rambam and other Sephardic luminaries to be especially appealing uh, to me because of its emphasis on the big picture, sort of like what I discussed before when we were right. talking about the earlier question about the balance of ritual versus a sense of purpose. And I felt that that definitely, and I don't think I fully realized the impact of that. It was a gradual process. And, and the result of having some amazing teachers who even though they were Ashkenazi, were themselves very much, um, uh, I would consider them intellectually Sephardic in many ways, even though they might be um, ethnically Ashkenazi because of their, uh, their views uh, were very much shaped by um, by the Rambam and other um, Sephardic thinkers. And therefore, because I had the advantage and the blessing actually starting from my high school years, all the way through, uh, all the way through my adulthood of having teachers like that, and that I still speak to to this day, and um, growing up in a household where 
religion was respected and the Sephardic style was respected, even where um, not everybody was as, as strict in their observance. So I never had any issues, let's say, at home with my parents being traditional, not, not as strictly observant as I became. Uh, that was never a conflict. You know, we each coexisted with each other and understood each other and were able to, you know, were able to uh, thrive yeah. together. So those two things, I think, are the strength of Sephardic Judaism uh, for me. I also feel very fortunate that, you know, I gained a lot from Ashkenazic tradition and from my exposure to Ashkenazic intellectual tradition because a lot of, uh, a lot of modern orthodoxy um, I think a, a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, Maimonidean, uh, the Rambam, the Rambam's thought was introduced to me through Ashkenazi teachers, uh, you know, and perhaps with Ashkenazi methodology. Which, even though nowadays I might have a different perspective, uh, or a perspective that's a little bit broader than the one that I was educated in in my uh, teen teenage years. I definitely gained a tremendous amount from uh, from that. So uh, I gained from both. Yeah, so to the listeners who are listening right now, um, Rabbi Maruf has his speech. Um, it's on, we're, we're going to tell you, you know, yeah, at the new- end of the podcast. Yeah, you want to tell them now? You it's can tell called, them now. Uh, it's called uh, Sephardic, Sephardic Tradition, the Judaism of the Future. It was actually delivered, I don't In know. Vancouver, right? No, there's one, I mean, there's three versions of it, but okay. this one was delivered like about 10 years ago, I want to say, uh, maybe give or take a year, uh, in the University of Maryland, Hillel. And I think it's like my by far most watched, uh, most viewed uh, YouTube lecture. And I recently gave it again in a different form in the Limud conference in Vancouver, a little bit of a different right. style, different uh, ambiance. But the original one, I think, still, you know, sets forth the case pretty clearly. Some people, as it as it goes in social media, you know, take issue yeah. with the things I've said, and uh, that's okay. Um, right. Exactly. But, uh, you know, but it's but I think I, I I at least state my case pretty pretty clearly there, and I I would agree with I think I still agree with myself after ten years, so that's a good sign. <laughs> awesome, Rabbi. How can we prove the dialogue? between all types of Jews, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Reform, Orthodox, Conservative, um, when everyone thinks, everyone thinks and acts so differently from each other, and everyone thinks they have the right way, how can we improve the dialogue? Well, I think that um, we have to have faith in the idea that the, the biggest enemy that we have is not one another. The biggest enemy that that we have is lack of engagement and uh, an apathy. Apathy is the, is, is the biggest enemy. And one of the things that we all share in common, no matter what our denomination uh, might be, is that we want meaningful engagement with Judaism uh, in thought and action in some form. And when you start with that basis and you believe that meaningful engagement will lead to positive outcomes. So then the sky's the limit, I think. I th- you know, we don't have an idea of proselytizing in Judaism, and we never did, because proselytizing comes from insecurity. 
if anybody out there thinks differently than I do, I have to convince them to think my way. Otherwise, I don't feel confident or comfortable with my beliefs. So if there's somebody out there who disagrees with me, I have to get rid of them or I have to convert them. That's a, that comes from insecurity because I can't tolerate the idea that someone disagrees with me without questioning my own belief. Uh, so we don't have proselytizing. We believe, I think, that uh, you know that in that since Judaism, Judaism's truth and 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 benefits speak for themselves. So if a person engages with Judaism in a meaningful way, they will see that for themselves. We trust in that. We believe in that. We don't have any insecurity about that, and so therefore we don't have anything to fear. So we can engage openly in discussion and dialogue one another and we can partner together in shared ventures in my opinion and we shouldn't have anything to worry about because we we know that engagement is the key and i i've often shared a story of somebody that i uh, i i still know um i i knew years ago told me the story he's a he's, he came to uh, the united states from russia i believe and at that time there was a yeshiva in in brooklyn that basically was, and most of the Russians who came over were totally secular, thoroughly secular, grew, grew up in, under communism. And so they wanted to give them a Jewish education, but they thought that that would kind of scare off the parents. So they told them, we'll teach them English. Just give them to, I know we're rabbis and all that, but we're going to teach them English. So they, you know, they gave them an education and they did teach them English and they taught them Judaic studies too. And so this, this fellow told me that, you know, in the classes of the Jewish studies, let's say 95%, 99% of the students just listened to the rabbi, did the homework, answered the question on the test and left. But there were two kids in the class that argued with the rabbi and everything. Everything the rabbi said, they argued, they questioned, they challenged, they would not stop. He said, those two were the two that became religious. Nobody else did. The two that fought, became religious and he was one of them. And the point was, what I gained from that was, apathy is the biggest enemy. If you don't care, you just pass through, you don't care. If you're questioning and you're arguing, that means you care. And one of the things, one of the signs you can tell that something is important to someone is if they won't let the issue go. It bothers them, they keep questioning it. You might get annoyed with them. Why do you keep asking? Why do you keep bothering? But the fact that they're asking and bothering, and I've seen it again and again, I've seen it in people who are so-called atheists that I've had correspondences with, and they keep writing me back. And eventually they say, you know what? I, I kind of beginning to see your point. And people always say, why are you wasting your time? I had one case with a, I had spo I've spoken about it in another context you might've heard, but. Yeah, maybe. I think but, I know the story, but yeah, yeah, but, please tell but me. Listeners first. haven't. Yeah. You know, but basically there was a, a certain atheist uh, scientist that I was having correspondence with and, we're going back and forth and I was trying to be, you know, always very nice and, and understanding, but explaining my case again and again and finding the points where we could agree instead of disagree. And after a while he said, you know, you've done something that my family's tried to do for years and could never accomplish, which is to get me to have a conversation about religion that, you know, and that was meaningful. And I see that we're really trying to do the same thing. We're both trying to educate people. We're, we're both trying to help people and we're, we're not really at odds. And, 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 I was, I was BCCing the whole time, this other guy who had started the conversation with this atheist, but had given up. And when he saw that email, he immediately contacted me and said, how did you, why did you keep going with this guy over all this time? How did you, why do you think he was ever going to do that? And I told him the same thing. The fact that he kept writing me back and he kept fighting me means he cares about it. If you care, if I see someone who cares, that means there's hope. 
I trust in the wisdom of the Torah. If a person studies it and sees, or in the beauty of the Torah, if a person sees it, they're going to love it. It's just a matter of getting them to engage and take it seriously. If they'll do that, then, th th then that's all that we need. And that and it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter their denomination. If you show somebody an idea that's beautiful, an insight that's beautiful, it's beautiful no matter what your denomination is. If you show them meaning in a mitzvah, it doesn't matter what their denomination is, they can see it. They may or may not choose to live, to, 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 to observe it, but they can see it and they can appreciate it and maybe in some way it can impact their life. And I think that's where we have to start, trying to get people to engage. I love number. that. I thought you were honestly going to say sinat chinam or people hating each other as the biggest threat to Judaism, or I thought you were going to say anti-Semitism, but mm -hmm. your answer was very interesting and eye-opening. So thank you for sharing that, Rabbi. Rabbi, what do you see as the Judaism of the future? Right. So in, in the lecture that I called the Judaism of the future, I talked about Sephardic Judaism, but specifically because, um, not because of an ethnic reason, like some people misunderstood that I was being, you know, I was making an ethnic point. It's not an ethnic point of Sephardic Judaism, but the philosophy of, of Sephardic Judaism being a more universalistic uh, concept of what Judaism is really about, or what I like to call big picture Judaism, a focus on the big picture, that Ashkenazic tradition was very focused on details and technicalities of laws. And part of that is cultural and historical. It has to do with the fact that they were isolated from general culture, mo mostly against their will, uh, you know, at various periods of time, whereas the Sephardic Jews were mainly integrated into the culture around them and afforded an education in the, uh, you know, from the uh, culture around them. So they had a different experience and were able to therefore uh, integrate their Judaism with a broader worldview. And I think this broader worldview is uh, where the laws and the mitzvot are understood as a part of a general mission to benefit the world and to bring humanity closer to God and to educate uh, mankind, that bigger picture Judaism, rather than a focus on the details or a belief, let's say that everybody in the world in the future is going to uh, be a, an Orthodox Jew that looks like somebody who lives in Borough Park right now or something like the, the, the vision that many people have of, of future times, I think that's a very limited view. I'm not saying that those Jews won't, wouldn't exist. I mean, they, of course they would. But the idea that, <clears throat> that we would have a very narrow conception of what it means to be a good person or to be a Jew could give way to a bigger picture Judaism where, of course, the mitzvot are observed, the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt, and uh, one day um, all of humanity acknowledge the one God. That's the dream of, of Judaism and the goal of Judaism. But to refocus on that as the goal, that the, uh, that the goal ultimately is to have a meaningful and purpose-driven Judaism uh, where, where the, the objective is to enlighten mankind, that the Jewish people have a mission to enlighten mankind, to help perfect society, and the mitzvot are a means of getting there. The mitzvot are not the end of the, uh, of the process. The mitzvot are a tool to make us worthy of that process and capable of that process. If we understand what we're doing as not just disconnected mechanical rituals, but actually uh, a components of a process of self-development and growth, which is supposed to equip us to then contribute 
to the growth and development of the society in which we live, not only the Jewish community, but mankind, the global society in which we live, now we really understand what Judaism is. That's the big picture Judaism. That's why I call Sephardic Judaism, because really the Sephardic rabbis and scholars were the ones who emphasized that, as I talk about in that lecture, for those who want to listen to it, that, uh, that, you know, that, that was what they emphasized in their teachings. Not that the Ashkenazi rabbi, somehow I was pitting Ashkenazi against Sephardic. I didn't mean it that way. But that the teachings of the Sephardic rabbis, that the way they tried to integrate Jewish life and practice in a more holistic worldview, that's what I believe is the, uh, you know, is the future of Judaism, rather than a more insular, isolated Judaism, because that doesn't seem to be the direction we're headed. The direction, what we need to do is show that Judaism has uh, the answer to many of the questions that uh, are facing uh, society today, uh, intellectual questions, philosophical questions, moral questions, that we can be leaders, that we can be examples and leaders in these areas, and that, like the prophets say, one day the nations of the world will consult with the Jewish people to understand how best to lead their lives and how best to, to understand who they really are and, 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 and why they're here, um, that we should beautiful. be able to be mentors to, to, to the nations of the world. Rabbi, that's beautiful. I'm very touched by that answer. And I pray that this Judaism of the future that you're envisioning will come to fruition sooner than later. Can you tell the audience about your website? Oh, so... Uh, right now, um, I have a new website. It was uh, many years in, in, in the making. Since I've accumulated a lot of classes, audio classes over the years, like several thousand, I think, at this point. I lo kind of lost track. Um, and I also had a blog that was pretty active uh, at a certain period of time, although not recently. I'm getting back into that now. Um, so you, it's called, uh, it, the, the website is ydvh.org. It's Yeshivat Dev Haskel. It's is the name of the online uh, institution, but it's actually ydvh.org is the website, and it's a place where you can find all of those classes categorized and organized. And pretty soon we're going to have weekly, um, uh, a couple of weekly uh, written divretois that are going to go out on that website as well. So hopefully it's going to become very active soon. It's still sort of under construction, but it's open. With it's got all the material that already exists. <laughs> present there and, and, and organized there. But now there's going to be a new wave, hopefully God willing, of, um, of uh, teaching and, and learning happening there too. And there's also an Ask the Rabbi component. There's a lot of different features on the website that are just being rolled out now. And hopefully people will take advantage of it. Thank you. Uh, Rabbi, I know you're an avid book reader. Um, you read lots of books. And I also know you're into hip hop music. <laughs> Um, can you just name a book or two that you re recommend a secular book? Well, audience. Of, in terms of music, I uh, <laughs> have an eclectic uh, musical taste that there is. I think um, I really practically any type of music um, is uh, I have an appreciation for. Maybe not so much. Uh, maybe jazz is an exception. I don't know. I never never really was into that. But for the yeah. most part, yeah, pretty much anything from classical. My my mother was a my, my mother's family is all musicians and uh, in classical or folk music. And uh, I grew up with every genre of music from, you know, from hip hop, like you said, but all the way to classical and opera and Broadway music. And I mean, everything in between. 
So um, wow. I, had a very, uh, eclect- I have a very eclectic taste. And I always comment to my kids when we go from station to station on the radio, like I don't think there's anybody else who would listen to these two, two would go from <laughs> some symphony of Mozart to some like uh, <laughs> in, 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 in one moment, but we're very, we're very into music. Um, in terms of books, I'm also, I'm very eclectic reader. So I have a lot of, it really depends what you're seeking in reading, uh, you know, in my opinion, because I have a lot of different interests and um, I, you know, I, I enjoy reading and since I was young. Um, if you're looking for uh, personal growth, I mean, I, I definitely have recommended in the past and I would recommend again, um, uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey is a classic, and I, I really enjoyed it a lot. It was recommended to me by somebody years ago, and I was very grateful for that recommendation. Um, other books that I like that pop out in the top of my head, I mean, recently I did one of those Facebook challenges where you put like seven books or something like that, a seven days, seven books challenge. Yeah. I don't remember what I put on there anymore, but I know that one of the books that I really loved was um, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen. 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 Yeah. That's, yes. That's that's like a classic also of parenting. There's also one for teachers. There's a teacher's version that they made. They, they were students of, of Chaim Ginot, the psychologist who kind of pioneered that. Um, he's an Israeli uh, psychologist who kind of pioneered that method, but they perfected it. And they really, th- those books are incredible if you're dealing with children in terms of how to talk to them. Absolutely the best. Nothing has come close to, uh, to their work. And I really recommend it. Um, another totally out of left field book. I recommend it all the time. So you're probably expecting this. And I know that in the girls' class, the women's class on Tuesdays, they know that I always mention it. Which um, one? The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Oh, yes. You mentioned it. Yes. It's, really, uh, it's, a, um, it's really a fantastic book. Why? No, you can hate Malcolm X. And people will say they don't like him. And he, he wasn't a fan of Israel. He wasn't a fan of Jews. I'm not so sure that that's the case. I'm not opining on that. It's irrelevant for the purpose of why I would recommend reading the book. The reason I recommend reading the book is because one of the phenomenal things about him, one of the unique things, is that he reinvented himself so many times in his life. He had experiences that challenged him to completely reinvent who he was. And to start out, he was a thug at some point and a criminal. And then he became part of the, you know, the nation of Islam. And obviously, that, then he realized that it was not genuine and that it wasn't authentic. And he became an actual Muslim at, towards the end of his life. But then he was assassinated. He he, he disavowed his racism and, his, uh, and his, his beliefs in the nation of Islam towards the end of his life. And that's why they, there was a price on his head and why they killed him. So, but what's fascinating is his ability to reinvent himself. And I feel like that's something that is so valuable to read about and so inspiring to read about. Uh, because one of the things that uh, is our challenge in life is to constantly reinvent ourselves. And if we think and feel and, and look at life the same way now that we did uh, 10 years ago, let alone, I mean, even a year ago, I feel like we should all be constantly evolving and growing. We should be open to the idea of reinventing ourselves, um, even, if, uh, even if we um, don't always require a total, you know, we don't necessarily require a complete revamping constantly, but we, we, we definitely have to be open to the idea of reinventing ourselves. And he's a great example of someone who, uh, who did that. Um, you know, I'm going to look into that. Yeah, that's, it's, 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 a, it's a worthwhile book. I For think sure. you'll find it rewarding. And uh, if you can put aside the particulars, maybe there's some details that, you know, are unsettling or make you, you know, make your hair bristle because, you know, because he wasn't a friend of Israel or whatever. But 
you know, I, I'm not looking at it from that perspective. I'm looking at it as an example of the ability of a human being, a thinking human being to, uh, to adapt and evolve and not be attached to a, a certain mode of being because, uh, you know, in a dogmatic way. He, that, that was what was remarkable uh, about him, in my, uh, in my opinion. Um, it is quite remarkable that a rabbi is speaking about such various topics and that you're showing that you're so open-minded and that you are eclectic in your taste of music and books and intellectual philosophies. You are just like your brain is, I just want to pick your brain all night. <laughs> Rabbi, you, thank you so much for giving your time, your expertise, your knowledge. You have really helped me think about things in a very different way tonight. I have one last question for you. Is it about Catholic University? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think we're going to go there tonight. Maybe for part two, if yeah. we do this. But that is, what is your favorite Parsha oh, from the that's Torah? A tough question. See, like, that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, but it's, it's, it's you know, because again, I think it really, it, it depends on what you mean by your favorite. Just like I have so many different books that I could make a list of my favorite book for self-improvement, my favorite fiction book that I think is insightful, my favorite psychology book, my favorite science book, math book. There's so many, I could give you a list in, in, in lots of different genres. So the same is true. It's like if I asked you what's your favorite music, I could give you all the different genres. Right. If you ask me what my favorite parasha is, I don't know for sure, but I think that the book of Dvarim, in general, uh, has extremely inspiring passages in it that are, that, and, and, and maybe the reason why I'm saying this is it kind of dovetails with everything else that I've said, so I can, I can look, at, I'm looking at myself in the mirror as I'm saying it, maybe, because what makes the book of Dvarim, and especially, let's say, like Parshat Ekev or, uh, or Nitzavim, uh, especially resonant for me, or Vaitchanan, especially resonant for me, is because they have these passages that speak about the values of Judaism, the big picture of Judaism. Because what is the book of Zarim? It's Moshe Rabbeinu reviewing after he's taught all the details, after he's taught all the stories and all of the commandments, all of the mitzvot and all of the laws. And then he circles back and he says, what is this all, what is my message to you? Right, what, what is this all about? Like if you want Jewish philosophy, you look in the book of Zarim. You, the rest of the books are the material, but where it's pulled together into a big picture is in the book of Zvarim where Moshe Rabbeinu says, what does Hashem, your God, ask of you? Only to fear Hashem, right? To walk in his ways, to observe his mitzvot, to love Hashem with all your heart and all of your soul. That's what Hashem is really fundamentally asking you, right? These kinds of passages or the idea of love of God in general, the idea of love and, and reverence for God, the idea of the ability to choose a choose in life free choice that is so fundamental um the idea that the torah should be for a person something that they internalize not something that seems distant or remote but something that they internalize becomes part of them all of these ideas you find in the book of darim all of these ideas are about the framework that makes judaism meaningful and Moshe Rabbeinu said, I don't want you to get lost just in the details and all the nitty gritty. I want you to see that there is a purpose here. There is a goal. There's an objective. There's a meaning to it. And, and where he integrates everything is in the book of Tvarim. So there are many passages in the book of Tvarim in those parashiot, Vat Hanan, Ekev, 
Nitzavim, uh, that to me, you know, touch upon those fundamental principles and really, um, uh, you know, and really uh, uh, are, are the, 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 I guess, my favorite in the sense that if I were to point to passages that I find the most inspiring, that I find the most uplifting, that, that I would turn to to clarify what's really most important in life. And it's not an accident that that's where the Shema is, you know, that that's where the, you know, even the Torah itself identifies these passages as very, very important. Even though every word of the Torah is important and every letter, every sentence, I mean, but, but uh, what passages are, that doesn't, just because every word of the Torah is holy and every word of the Torah is equally true, doesn't mean that every word of the Torah is equally fundamental to your development. That's, that's you know, that's not the same thing, right? Right? Like, yeah. every, just because every element on the periodic table is, uh, is real doesn't necessarily mean that they all play as significant of a role in your life. That's, you know, Got so, it. you know, and, and, and when it comes to, uh, when it comes to Torah, that's what I would say also. You basically, this was the whole theme of our podcast right now. This is what you were talking about. I just, everything that you answered me was about big picture Judaism, looking at the meaning and the purpose behind it, not to just do it for the sake of getting a checkpoint, you know, like a brownie point, but right. it's something bigger and deeper. But that the reason why people don't have this perspective is number one, because they, maybe they haven't been introduced to it but it's also harder. It's easier to live in a narrower, uh, more sheltered uh, framework. It's easier not to engage with the big questions or feel that there's a purpose that everything is building up to and to feel that your religion is just measured by the, the smaller, smaller details. So it, it's a challenge to live that way. And it's, a it's been a challenge for the Jewish people from the beginning. Right. But we shouldn't, you know, the fact that people haven't bought into it yet is, is not because, um, you know, is, is because it's a long process to get there. Right. Rabbi, if people want to hear more of your teachings and what you're offering, where can they find you? Well, the easiest place to find me now, if you want to listen to any shiurim that I've given, is on the website of ydvh.org. Obviously, I also am teaching in the Beit Midrash, the Sephardic Beit Midrash here in Great Neck, various shirim during the week. Uh, the schedule changes on a fairly regular basis, but if, you, you know, here in, if you're here in Great Neck and local, uh, we also, I, it's, I also always put things on the Zoom, the same Zoom as is embedded in my website. So if a person goes on there during the time that there's a shiur, they should be able to, to, in, you know, to be there live. Uh, like Monday night, we have a parasha class at 9 p.m., uh, that's a great place to start. We have a women's class Tuesday. It's always at 9 p.m. also. And these two classes are probably the ones that are the pillars of my schedule in the evenings. The other ones tend to change. So, uh, but if you, if you take a look back at the website, you should see that um, there will be news there and updates on what uh, Shirim are coming up and you'll be able to join. I'm looking forward to it. And this way you're impacting not just the Great Net community, but your impacting many, many communities, educating them about what is the Judaism of the future. Rabbi Maruf, thank you very much for your time, your expertise, and your knowledge, and your wisdom. I really appreciate it, and I have no doubt that people are greatly going to benefit from this interview. So thank you very much. Thank you.
Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to Soul Sessions with KK. The goal of this podcast is to awaken your soul to different perspectives, perspectives that might be very, very different from yours. And I really, really admire the quote from Pierre K. Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, that says, who is wise? The one who learns from others. That is the goal of this show, for us to learn from other people, because that's what makes us wiser and better people. Anyway, it would mean the world to me if you can leave a review on my podcast. And also, if you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at coach.kk. See you later. Thank you.